Instead of focusing on winning arguments, we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and marketing and how we can use them to win in the world of politics, teaching you how to meet people where they're at on the issues they care about. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Well, happy Monday there, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show, and thank you for joining us on, of course, another fun-filled episode. I am, as always, your humble host, and today we're going to be talking... Uh, it's, it'd be interesting. The world of advertising, the world of politics, we're bridging the two together because I just read a brand new book, Can't Sell, Won't Sell. We have the author of that book, Steve Harrison, on the program. Steve, welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much for having me on. Looking forward to this conversation, Steve. I, I literally was just showing you beforehand. I'll show the audience, right? Uh, this book, can't sell, won't sell. I literally went through highlighter in hand and just, I mean, they're, they're, I can't stop. It's amazing how much there is of, I've gone through because this book is so full of goodies, not just in the world of sales, talking about meeting people where they're at and the issues they care about, but also I think you really hit the nail on the head, Steve, about what we're seeing as a fundamental issue in the ability to have a political discourse, a political conversation where we have opinions, but we're able to have a conversation with one another versus uh, looking at the other as the enemy and, and making them the other tribe and pushing them away. So before we dig into can't sell, won't sell, do me a favor, introduce yourself to the Brian Nichols Show audience, uh, your, your world in the world of advertising, and then what brought you to write this wonderful book, Can't Sell, Won't Sell. Well, um, well, Brian, I'm a copywriter. Um, I was the European creative director at Ogilvy One. I was the worldwide creative director at Wonderman, which is now Wonderman Thompson. Uh, and in between those two roles, I founded my own agency, um, HTW, and during my time there, one more can lions in my discipline than any other creative director in the world, that discipline being direct. Um, so I've always been very uh, uh, keen on effectiveness in advertising. Um, why did I write this book? Uh, because I, I, it was apparent from myriad pieces of evidence that the industry had either forgotten how to or no longer wanted to sell. And I was trying to tease out why, among several reasons, why that should possibly be. Um, and it occurred to me that it was because the industry was now so left-leaning, so culturally left-leaning, that it could no longer bring itself to stoke the engines of growth and consumption, um, of, of capitalist growth and consumption. Uh, it had stopped... It had stopped um, embracing its commercial purpose and instead was pushing its social purpose. We were no longer selling products and services, Brian. We, as an industry, were saving the world. <laughs> save the world. Save the dolphins. Save the fishes. Save the trees. We've all heard the expressions, the slogans, and, I mean, dare I say, indoctrination to an extent. You mentioned um, in the book about you know, when you talk to kids who grew up learning the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle in, in elementary That's school. It. I was one of those generation. That was me. That we, I remember that yeah. very vividly uh, growing up in, in northern New York State. So yes, this idea that... I think on that point, on that point Brian, I think yeah. that this, the, I, went, I was in a restaurant on, back in my hometown of Blackpool and the the adults were all having their fun and the kids had been left to have their fun and the kids were all drawing 
the world on fire. You know, at six oh. years of age, six years of age, the kids were, that's how they were amusing themselves. And I honestly do think it's a form of child abuse. The, the, the insistence to children that they are the last generation on earth unless something happens now is a form of child, uh, child abuse and will have and is having a insidious effect upon their mentality, their outlook, their sense of self and their sense of where their future lies. Yeah. Anyway, go on. No, no. Well, and this literally goes into now the book itself can't sell, won't sell is full of goodies, but I really just dug into chapter 10 and that's where I really want to focus the majority of the conversation today because it speaks to, and, and you just talked about this, where everybody is at a level 100 at all times. There is no taking a step back. It's always you're pushing whatever the social cause is because to your point, World's on fire, you know, if you don't love it, you're going to try to kill grandma, you know, look at COVID, what happened here over the past two years, and actually this is where this chapter picks up and where I wanted to focus on, because we're talking about the onset of COVID-19, I'm going to pick up, this is page 134, so you say, nor with the onset of COVID-19, would there be a talk of making a, quote, meaningful stand against a recession and the suffering that the ensuing bankruptcies and employment would bring? And I highlight here, no, if there was a battle raging amongst those who zoomed into the can-do festival, it would have been against the progressive, less usual demons. And those folks hardly likely would shore up a struggling free market economy because for many of them, capitalism is demon number one. And you, you look at all the different you know, boogeymen we've seen, yeah. climate change, end of the world, uh, covid end of the world, uh, you go through whatever it is that the, the conversation seems to be raised up as, it almost always is rooted in some hidden behind the scenes anti-capitalist rhetoric. I think you actually brought up in the book uh, the rhetoric of the Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah. And, yes. and the Black Lives Matter organization has in its actual roots Marxist language that is fundamentally anti-capitalist and yet got how much money in donations, Steve? Something in the, the billions of dollars, wasn't it? Yeah. Millions, billions, yeah. something. It was a lot, though. The, um, the, the Patrice, Patrice Cullis, who is one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, was uh, quoted in the Financial Times. She said, myself and Alicia, and that's Alicia Garza, in particular, have ideological frames. We are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. We are super versed in ideological theories. Okay, so yes, Black Lives Matter at its root is an anti-capitalist movement. Um, and and uh, as is Extinction Rebellion. I mean, I mean, naturally, Extinction Rebellion is anti-capitalist because capitalism is about growth and consumption. And, and Extinction Rebellion makes the the valid point that you you know kind of that that it, you are endangering the planet uh, with uh, with finite finite resources and infinite growth so yes these issues have to be addressed and i'm not saying that there is no basis in you know kind of of course the argument needs to be made for racial equality and against racism and of course the argument needs to needs to be made against the despoilation of our planet but the organizations who have co-opted those two and arguably valid points are extremist and have anti-capitalism at their root. Yeah. 
Well, and let's talk about what's just happened over the past two years, because this is, you make this point in the book, and this is just a great point, because you're talking about what's happened over the past two years with COVID, the economic hardships, and on page 137, you say, in fact, as Adlan's headlight-grabbing demonstrations of enthusiasm for Black Lives Matter intensified, the conversation was closed down, and it would have been a brave person who would have broached the subject or point out that unless we got the economy working again, there would be no jobs for anyone of any ethnic background to go to. And that right there is an underlying point I think a lot of people forget, especially when you look at the anti um, the anti-capitalist class where it's, you know, you're against the rich people, you're against the business owner, but you know, where where do these jobs come from? Who who are the individuals making the risk and making the investment that are opening up these opportunities? And I think to your point, if those jobs do not exist per the the sentiments and wishes of the anti-capitalists and where do they think that this ability to, to solve all the hardships and the problems they see in the world is going to come from? Uh, throughout the whole of the COVID, the pandemic crisis, and the and during the recession that brought it on, um, the, the, I don't think I... I think I've found one person who actually made the argument for advertising's commercial purpose and the fact that the advertising industry could help save the country from or help the country emerge from re- from recession and spare the people the misery of redundancies, factory closures, uh, wage cuts, um, government cuts, whatever. Uh, nobody in the industry wanted to know. No one in this industry accepted that it was our, our, our the most societal good we could do was to keep factories, restaurants, shops open. Well... You mentioned um, you mentioned a lot in the book the UK's favorite socialist Jeremy Corbyn. Well, over in the United, uh, United States here, we have our favorite socialist Bernie Sanders, and yeah. um, Bernie Sanders is often noted for his argument back. I think it was in the twenty 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 election um, there or twenty sixteen where it was brought up uh, about I think it was deodorants, and you know you, you you don't need that many different types of deodorants. You don't you don't need that. Um, and you saw, you see this kind of approach, like you know, the um, you, you don't need these many choices, you don't need many, these many options. And you raise this up in the book as well. There's one part you you mentioned, <laughs> it, it, you, the ca- the caption is "Hurry up and die." Uh, Mike Dewuna, I hope I got that last yep. name uh, yep. correct, managing director of Crush, was asked as if he thought brands should shed consumers who hold quote disagreeable views. In his considered view, they quote have to make a choice. Either A, attempt to give comfort to an ever-decreasing aging consumer base who revel in division by pandering to their unconscious and sadly, in many cases, conscious prejudices, or B, embrace generation that seeks commonalities and shared experiences, hence seeing a massive benefit in the long run where you so adequately uh, wrap up the basic premise being that the mainstream is an irredeemably racist and should hurry up and die so that nicer, more tolerant people can take over. Yes, I mean, there are two points to be made about that, that Mike's Mike's dismissal of an entire um, sector of society based upon a negative stereotype of that sector is itself irredeemably racist. And secondarily, there's a wonderful book by a man called Bobby Duffy, who used to be the head of international research at Ipsos Mori, called Generations. Uh, I would recommend your your listeners buy a copy of Bobby Duffy's book, Generations, which indicates that actually this myth of a 
of a young generation of social justice warriors is, or, or the idea of a young, a, a young emergent generation of social justice warriors is an absolute myth. That there is very little to dis- differ- differentiate between the age groups as far as commitment to and uh, and agreement with uh, agreement about questions on social justice. Um, there is, I, I do a, I do talks to uh, students, and I say along with a, I, I picking on Edelman research, and I say, would you consider boycotting a brand that has a terrible history of, on 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 environmental pollution? Would you uh, consider boycotting a brand that has a terrible history of, of treating its employees? bad and secondly one with a a, a, a a brand which has a carbon footprint the size of belgium and and finally one that that has a history of tax avoidance and of course all the youngsters hands go up and then i say uh, any of you bought anything from amazon in the past month and of course all the ones who said that they would boycott this terrible you know kind of demonic uh, entity uh, all m- most of them have actually bought something from amazon over the past four weeks um, so yeah, so yeah. Th- th- as I say, the myth of the of the young social justice warriors is uh, something very well described in Bobby Duffy's book Generations. We are very much alike, and the mainstream are, I think, the mainstream's opinions are not as polarized as the as the social as, as social media would have us believe. Um, and mainstream in my industry are I sick. I think, sick and tired of the politicization of their industry. It is simply that the, that the, the activists and the careerists are driving us down the path of social purpose and social justice as our raison d'etre. Well, and how do we get here, right? This this is the question any good sales guy will will in, inevitably ask during the sales conversation is how do we get to where you currently are? So we understand, you know, A, how you got to the problems where you are, but B, how that decision-making process went into place. And let's let's look at how we got to where we are from it, not just this conversation you're seeing in your, your ad world, but also what we're seeing just in the ability to have these conversations. And I think you outline it perfectly. It is this just complete, uh, just going in an isolation into our own silos, our own groupthink, and you you say there you outline your culture. It's a suffocating monoculture that allows leaders to present unchallenged opinions as uncontrovertible fact, and that right there is is what we're seeing. I think being challenged a little bit, and I think we're you know talking about topical issues. Why yeah. Elon Musk buying Twitter? That is such a a you know big slap into the face to a lot of people because for so long, if you did not toe the line, if you did not say the the quote unquote the right thing, the 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 progressive thing, the the SJW thing, then you were in line to not just not get the awards or the accolades, but in many cases, to be silenced, to be banned, to be to be outcast. So we're seeing now there's been a little bit of a resurgence, and you talked about this in the book as well. There has been this resurgence, but let's talk about that group thing, Steve. Um, you know, wh- where do you see the outlying framework of this group thing coming from? Um, well, we are a, 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 it's the people in advertising don't like to hear this, but we are one of the most elitist industries. In, in 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 the United Kingdom, and I'm sure this obtains in the United States as well. Something like 88% of us in our industry went to university. 
or have a master's degree. That's 88%. Something like 70% of us grew up in an AB social grade household, which is the richest household social grade. Um, something like 66% of us had a professional parent, um, mother or father. Um, I think 35% of us went to private school. We are a, and, for, and uh, 80% of us are aged between 18 and 40. It's a bubble. Andrew Tenzer and Ian Murray did wonderful research in this in two papers called The Empathy Delusion and The Aspiration Window. And they said advertising and marketing marketers diverge from the mainstream on every major psychological, behavioral and attitudinal framework that we have explored. They inhabit two different worlds. Um, the, 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 over to put this in the context in the United States, when I was reading about what the situation was there, it was estimated in Forbes magazine that between 85 and 90 percent of the people who work on the East and West Coast advertising agencies in the United States are left leaning. And the majority of them were in, were in the Bernie Sanders camp. And the question was asked is how could these left-leaning, progressive young people relate to the 72 million basket of deplorables who voted for for uh, Donald Trump? Could they find the empathy to do so? Or have they written them off? You know, is there a common ground? Is there a, set, a common set of values that can be tapped into and can be developed, which will allow the two those two very distinct entities to talk to each other. That's that that that's one question. But the, but um, it, unfortunately, the 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 conversation is being set by those advertising agencies on the east and west coast, just as it is being set by those who control them. The other media, uh, our other cultural, business, academic institutions are being the the conversation is being set. By that, those, that constituency of middle, of, of metropolitan, well educated, university educated, um, uh, progressive liberal elite. So, yeah, you know, kind of how do we, how do we, how do, how do, how do we, how do you change the conversation or at least interrupt the conversation with an opinion which, which might not be welcome? Right. Well, and, and let's, as we kind of wrap the conversation here, go towards, I thought probably one of the most enlightening parts of this part of the book was you're talking about, well, who is it that we're seeing this division between? And you you label them, I thought it was very, very well uh, put out, as the anywheres versus the somewheres. Um, yes. Can you can you dig into the, who the anywheres are and the somewheres, why they are different and how that, that schism has come to be? Um, well, the anywheres, the somewheres are people who, if, who, who relate to the place in which they were probably brought up. You know, if you ask them, where are you from? They'd say, I'm from Cleveland. If you ask them where they're from, they say, I'm from Des Moines, and I'm from this neighborhood, or I'm from, you know, the neighborhood I've lived in and relate to and find my identity and get my values from. And those are the, and they are the majority of people in the United Kingdom in the United States. And the somewheres are people who get their identity from a more cosmopolitan, more metropolitan, more outward-looking um entity so they they would you know kind of uh, they have they have more in common in new york 
and Los Angeles and San Francisco and Sydney and London and Berlin and Amsterdam than they do with people in Des Moines, in, in, in Minneapolis, in Cleveland, in Columbus, in Albany, whatever, you know, kind of. So they're more, they're more in common with the people in the, in the, in, for the, with the, the ex, the outside world than they have the people who are closer, who are, who are their neighbors, essentially. I really it hit me when I heard the anywhere and the somewhere approach. It, 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 it I think I see it because I've moved from where I was up, you know, upstate New York is where I born and raised, and then yeah. I, I moved away from there to to college, moved then to Philadelphia, and now I'm in Indiana. And I found that I have I can empathize with both camps, the anywheres and the somewheres, and, and I think that's sometimes uh, where it gets frustrating is when you can understand where both sides are coming from, and you can see instead of talking to each other they're talking past each other and in many cases to your point that you have in one case one group of people not just talking past but explicitly talking down to another group yeah. of people and that's i think where we're seeing the conversation now especially going forward right steven this as we wrap up the conversation i think will be you know what people can look forward to is that yeah. we are seeing the conversation changing the progressive left and the hive mind approach while it still is there it doesn't necessarily have a firm grasp on control of the conversation moving forward as it once did in the past. No, no. Well, thankfully, we we still in, live in democratic society and the midterm elections will probably remind everybody that the progressive conversation needs to be answered and is being um, answered. Um, I just hope that you manage to find some middle ground between the progressive, you know, kind of between the those on the east and west coast and what you would regard as the flyover states because at the moment there doesn't seem to be too much common ground there but hopefully brian that's what talk shows like yours are, are are intent upon rectifying and good luck to you and god bless you in that in those efforts thank you i appreciate that steve it's been a challenge um because the the average person i think is tired um and they don't want to engage in the conversation so no. what happens is the people who who are being impacted the most and quite frankly have the most at stake are pushed out of even taking part in the conversation to begin with. And then the conversation is dictated by instead the loudest voices, the squeakiest wheels. And and yeah. that right there, I think is going to be the biggest thing we're going to see. You talked about this at the very beginning, the silent majority standing up, the individual who is so just tired and now finally saying, no, we're, we're going to, you know, not necessarily want wanting to lead this conversation, but knowing we have to be part of this conversation and we're going to make our voices heard. That is who I think we're going to be looking to, to speak up. And if that's sounds like you, you, you're like, Hey, this sounds like a person that I can identify with that I can empathize with. Well, then I got to tell you folks, you got to go ahead and get can't sell, won't sell. You will not put it down. Please get your highlighter in hand. Steve, where can folks go ahead and pick up their copy today? If they feel so inclined. Oh, I'm afraid you'll have to get it from Amazon. The terrible, uh, polluting, um, <laughs> uh, the, the way it treats is, it's, it, yeah, yeah. Amazon, I'm afraid. Sorry. Yeah, it is what it is. And Steve, where can folks go ahead and find you if they want to continue the conversation? Oh, uh, my uh, my email address is harrisosteve, that's H-A-R-R-I-S-O-S-T-E-V-E. That's harrisosteve at googlemail.com. Awesome. All right, Steve, we appreciate your time today. Thank you 
for joining us on the program. And folks, if you enjoyed today's episode, well, please do me a favor. Actually, do me two favors. Number one, please go ahead and give today's episode a share. When you do, make sure you go ahead and give yours truly a tag at B Nichols Liberty. Number two, please go ahead and give us a five-star rating and review. The, the reviews have been flying in. I read every single one of them. And hey, you might go ahead and hear your five-star review read here live on air on an episode of The Brian Nichols Show. Who knows, Steve? Who knows? So with that being said, it's Brian Nichols signing off here for Steve Harrison from Can't Sell, Won't Sell. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Enjoying the audio version of the show? Then you'll love our YouTube channel. Be sure to head over there and subscribe. And if you're new to The Brian Nichols Show, be sure to head to your favorite podcast catcher and click download all unplayed episodes so you don't miss one of our nearly 500 episodes that will be sure to leave you educated, enlightened, and informed. If you got value from today's episode, can you do me a favor and head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash support and leave us a $5 donation? And by the way, have you given the show a five-star review yet? If not, head to Apple Podcasts and tell folks why you listen to the program and don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe too. Follow me on social media at B Nichols Liberty. And again, if you'd be so kind, please consider making a donation to the Brian Nichols Show at briannicholsshow.com forward slash support. The Brian Nichols Show is supported by viewers like you. Thank you to our patrons, Daryl Schmitz, Michael Lima, Mitchell Mankiewicz, Cody Johns, Craig DaCosta, and the We Are Libertarians Network. Faced with an uncertain future, many business owners and technology professionals don't have the time needed to invest in their business technology strategies. And as a result, they're afraid of their technology getting outdated and putting their company and customers' information at risk. The digital future is already here, but with all different choices in the marketplace, it's difficult to know which one will be the best fit for you and your strategic vision. Imagine having the peace of mind that your business is backed by the right technology investments that are tailored for your specific needs. Hi, I'm Brian Nichols, and I've helped countless business owners and technology professionals just like you, helping you make informed decisions about what technologies are best to invest in for your business. Voice, bandwidth, cybersecurity, business continuity, juggling all the aspects of business technology is messy. Let me help. Head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash help and sign up for a free one-on-one consultation with yours truly to dig deep into where you see your company heading and how we can align your business technology towards those goals. Again, that's briannicholsshow.com forward slash help to get your simplified business technology started today.